Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. This week, we're reading sermons 934 to 940, with 940 itself being our featured sermon. They're the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was born in 1834, and he died in 1892. He's often known as the Prince of Preachers. His ability, his heart for the preaching of Jesus Christ is one of the reasons why we're still reading his sermons today. I hope you'll appreciate what we look at today and I hope you'll follow along with us uh, joining in with this podcast in the future. If you want to know more about it you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts or find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. Today's sermon is The Winnowing Fan. It's delivered on the Lord's Day morning of the 10th of July, 1870, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The text is Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, I don't think we ever really read a Spurgeon sermon and think this man is not in earnest. What we sometimes feel reading a particular sermon is this man is particularly in earnest. This man feels the weight of what he preaches and that's true of this particular sermon. He begins with this intensity. Well did the apostle declare that the righteous scarcely are saved. It is no child's play to be a Christian. The Christian life is beyond the poet's meaning real and earnest. He goes on, it will be well for us to remember that the religion of Jesus Christ is not a matter of trifling, that the gaining of heaven is not to be achieved by a few half-hearted efforts, and if we will at the same time recollect that all sufficient succour is prepared for us in the covenant of grace, we shall be in a right state of mind, resolute yet humble, leaning upon the merits of Christ and yet aiming after personal holiness. He quotes, Roland Hill, or paraphrases Roland Hill, another preacher from a, just a generation or so before who is very precious to Spurgeon, who said he'd spent a large part of his life in battling with the white devil of Arminianism, but he would now fight the black devil of antinomianism. And Spurgeon says he himself desires to maintain always a balance in his own ministry, and while combating self-righteousness on the one hand, to war perpetually with loose living on the other. And that's the reference to Arminianism and antinomianism. Arminianism, the the notion that there is something in man whereby he can save himself. Antinomianism, literally uh, against the law, uh, would be to, to displace or to downplay the place of holiness and righteousness in accordance with God's commandments in the Christian life. And so, says Spurgeon, we must remember that though we are saved by grace, yet grace does not stupefy us, that is, it doesn't send us to sleep, but rather quickens us into action. And though salvation depends upon the merits of Christ, yet those who receive those merits receive with them a faith which produces holiness. That's all in the introduction. It's not even the whole introduction. It's about half of it. But you get immediately this sense of the, uh, the preacher's intensity and earnestness. And so he wants us to notice two things to be followed and two to be avoided in his text. It's, it's really a stripped down outline. Uh, and there's a sort of relentless intensity in the way that he goes about this. So two things in the text to be followed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, 
without which no man shall see the Lord. Peace is to be studied, but not such a peace as would lead us to violate holiness by conforming to the ways of unregenerate and impure men. We are only so far to yield for peace's sake as never to yield a principle. We are to be so far peaceful as never to be at peace with sin, peaceful with men, but contending earnestly against evil principles. Some who have aimed at holiness have made the great mistake of supposing it needful to be morose, contentious, fault-finding and censorious with everybody else. Their holiness has consisted of negatives, protests and oppositions for opposition's sake. Their religion mainly lies in contrarieties and singularities. To them the text offers this wise counsel, follow holiness but also follow peace. Courtesy is not inconsistent with faithfulness. It is not needful to be savage in order to be sanctified. A bitter spirit is a poor companion for a renewed heart. Those uh, sentences, uh, as he talks about both peace and holiness, could be written over half a hundred blogs and, and podcasts and other, other such things in, in our own day and age. Anyway, the connection between the two, they belong together, making up a complete character, but he wants to look at each one in their turn. First of all, then, follow peace, peace with all. And that means to follow peace with all the church. There should be no quarrels within the sacred enclosure which the electing love of God has made. You are one in the divine choice. You are one by the Saviour's purchase, one by the Spirit's calling. You have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You are on the way to one heaven. See that you not fall out by the way. Let brotherly love continue. So I think he's talking here not just about the individual congregation, the, uh, the, the congregation in itself, but even between the congregations. Do not trifle with God's truth, but where there is something of Christ, there is a relationship for you, brother to brother. Then follow peace with all, especially with your own relatives and friends at home. Can we call that man a Christian who will not speak with his own brother? Spurgeon knows that as much then as today, so many of the divisions that take place between Christians actually take place within families, uh, physical families as well. How is it that you, calling yourself a follower of Christ though, can allow enmity to reign in your spirit? What are your gifts and worshipping while wrath rules within your bosom? What have you to do with worshipping God? You leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then you're to follow peace with all your neighbours. A Christian man should not make himself hated by all around him. Yet there are some who seem to fancy that they are true to their religion in proportion as they make themselves disagreeable. Win your neighbours by your willingness to oblige. Disarm their opposition, if possible, by courtesy, by charitableness, by kindness. And then follow peace even with persecutors. We are to follow peace with the most infidel, that is, the most unbelieving, the most superstitious, the most wicked, the most cruel. If they will fight, let the fighting be all on one side. Or if we take up any weapons, let the weapons be those of long-suffering and of love. Let us kill fire with fire, and by the flame of love overcome the flame of hatred. This then is the the all-encompassing pursuit of peace, remembering again those qualifications up front that not peace at the expense of holiness, nor holiness without any regard for peace, but this peace with holiness in the church, amongst relatives and friends, with neighbours, and even with persecutors. And then he emphasises that this following of peace is like a hunter in pursuit of his game. 
Don't be merely peaceful if you're not irritated, but go out of your way to be peaceful. Give up many things that you have the right to enjoy. The respect that is due to you, be willing to forego. In fine, yield all but truth for peace's sake. In other words, make this the, the most significant element of your life. Make this a, a something that you're willing to sacrifice in order to obtain, so long as you do not surrender truth and holiness. So what is it that's going to stop you following peace in this way? What are the things that are going to get in the way? First of all, it's a mass of pride. You cannot follow peace if you are proud. Proud men must raise strife by their pride. Even if they try to exhibit good nature, yet pride neutralizes all and inevitably excites envy and opposition. Unless you walk humbly, you cannot follow peace. Nor can you if your heart is full of envy, because envy paints upon the diseased eyeballs of her victims the faults of others. The faults they see are rather in themselves than in others, yet they think they see them there. It's that projection that often happens in envy. We assume that other people are thinking or wanting what we are wanting. Then again, you cannot follow peace if you have a swift moving tongue, if you speak before you think. For more mischief, says Spurgeon, is made by idle tittle-tattle than by downright malice. And you see, if you, if you have any sense of your own heart, let alone any experience of the world, that the man or woman who is more or less characterised by pride and envy and quickness of speech is, is typically someone who is going to bring discord, who's going to bring enmity and antagonism rather than peace with all. So, says Spurgeon, if we would follow peace, if we would hunt after it in this way, we must gird our loins with the girdle of forbearance. We must basically learn to put up with people. We must resolve that as we will not give offence, so neither will we take offence. Or if offence be felt, we must resolve to forgive. Then we must also pursue holiness. And you see how rapidly and how pointedly he's dealing with these things. Now, he talks about imputed holiness as a gross misuse of terms, not scriptural, and a thorough perversion of this passage. This is the holiness, he says, that is produced in us by the Holy Ghost, which we progressively manifest in our hearts and lives. So this is our personal holiness. This is cultivated Christ-likeness. Follow this holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. I understand by this sentence, he says, in the first place, that no person who is unholy can see or understand Christ the Lord or God his Father. That is to say, he does not know who Christ is so as to have any real fellowship with him. You might know his name and his history, some theoretical ideas of what the Redeemer did and is, but you cannot grasp him with the eye of faith. But the greater meaning is this. Without holiness... No man can see the Lord in heaven at last. Yes, on the throne of judgment, but not as a friend. God, he says, is so holy that he never can have fellowship with unholy creatures. We, we might need to pause here and just point out the, the high conception that Spurgeon always entertains of the character of God. He is persuaded of the majesty and the glory and the holiness of the Lord. And that underpins both his own sense of sin and the wonder of salvation. So he goes on, Heaven, the court of God, is so holy that never can unholy beings tread its hallowed pavement. An angel once became unholy, and from the battlements of heaven he was hurled into the deeps of hell. God willed to save his elect, 
but he would not bring them to heaven until he had sanctified them, that is, set them apart to himself and conformed them to his son's image. He therefore sent his son to die, that from his wounded side might flow the purifying stream. Surely he who would not spare Satan, the bright archangel, will not admit polluted man to heaven. And he who put his son to death to bring his own elect to heaven by purifying them from sin will not bring any of us there if we remain unholy and submit not ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon says, if you really want to understand the holiness of God, then you need to look at the cross and understand what it cost God in order to make us fit for his holy presence. Now, as we are to follow peace, so we are to follow holiness. Follow it, that is to say, you will not gain it by standing still. Nobody ever grew holy without consenting, desiring and agonizing to be holy. Sin will grow without sowing, but holiness needs cultivation. I think that's so important to remember that so often we just, we just want to become holy. Or we want to be made holy. No, says Spurgeon, you must consent to it, desire it and strain after it. And it's a high and lofty text and almost too high to be addressed to some professors for some who bear the name of Christ have not even followed after morality yet, much less after holiness. He says people will dare to profess the religion of Christ who can enjoy a lascivious song and broad talk. It means dirty songs and foul language. You think of some of the uh, the music that is played today. You think of some of the uh, the kind of Uh, vulgar lyrics that are characteristic of so much uh, modern songs, so many modern songs. Spurgeon's saying, can you really sing those things? Can you really engage with those things? Could you watch those videos and say, oh, this is, it's okay to indulge in this and I can still pretend to be a Christian. They're given to what is softly styled imprudence, which is really impurity. Impure familiarities, glances and sports are the commencement of actual crimes. Men and women who in any way injure their delicacy and modesty by insensible degrees proceed to overt sin. What he means by that is you just desensitize your conscience. You, you gradually tear down the, the natural barriers of morality until you can give yourself to sin without even really feeling your conscience pricked. But, Spurgeon says, you should hate the very thoughts of uncleanness. Your members are members of Christ. Your bodies are to be raised in the image of Christ. Defile them not, but walk with the utmost purity, as in the sight of the thrice holy God. So some aren't even moral. Some are not honest. They cheat, they misrepresent, and they lie. Some are drunken. Men given to wine cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit. Some are, are lazy. We have those in the church who are shamefully idle, who if they could but live on the alms of the church, that is, if they could just enjoy the charity of the church, would never do a hand's turn for themselves. And how the grace of God can live in a lazy man, I know not. Now, he says, if I have to speak of such sins as these that are common among ungodly men, well may my heart ache when I see them in the church of God. His point is that that sins like impurity and dishonesty and drunkenness and laziness are characteristic of the world, why is it then that they are there creeping into the church of Jesus Christ? What is it that we we have to, to deal with if these things are in the body of Jesus Christ? 
Holiness, he says, is better than morality. It includes it and goes beyond it. Holiness affects the heart. Holiness respects the motive. It regards the whole nature of man. A moral man does not do wrong in act. A holy man hates the thought of doing wrong. A moral man does not swear, but a holy man adores. A moral man would not commit outward sin. A holy man would not commit inward sin. And over that inward sin, if committed, he would pour forth floods of tears. You see the distinction here. The moral man is concerned with externalities. The holy man is concerned with his heart above all things and as well as its outworkings. A man who is made spiritually whole then is a complete man. All the virtues are there. His heart is right as well as his outward acts. Heal all, whole, holy, holy. By these steps you reach the word. A holy man aims to be like God, complete in his character, motives and thoughts, renewed after the image of him that created him in righteousness and true holiness. And Spurgeon says then, uh, are you, are you going to tell me that I'm judging you too severely? No, it's not me who judges you. It is God's word that judges, and I pray you regard its infallible utterance. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Without holiness, a great preacher may preach and win souls, but he will not see the Lord. Does someone give greatly to the cause of God? Yes, very liberally. But without holiness, he shall not see the Lord. This is the indispensable indication of the man who will come into the presence of the Almighty on the day of judgment. Without holiness, neither you nor I, he says, shall ever get one joyful glimpse of God. These things then are necessary. And now the two things to be followed are followed by the two things to be avoided in the next verse in his text, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. The first thing then to be avoided is failure. There are some persons who for a time appear to possess the grace of God and for a while exhibit many outward evidences of being Christians. But at last the temptation comes, most suitable to their depraved tastes, and they are carried away with it. There's this intensification, this moment of, of particular assault, and so they fall. Some, he says, have maintained an admirable character to all appearance all their lives, and yet have failed of the grace of God because of some secret sin. They persuaded even themselves that they were believers, and yet they were not truly so. They had no inward holiness. They allowed one sin to get the mastery. They indulged in an unsanctified passion. And so though they were laid in the grave like sheep, they died with a false hope and missed eternal life. Spurgeon says you can, you can play the game outwardly, but if inwardly you are dominated by, by greed, by miserliness, if inwardly you are dominated by uh, lust, by uh, greed for food or sexual desire, if that is your, your overwhelming uh, sin, if, if you're obsessed with your self-importance, if you're taken up with your own reputation, if you're crippled by pride, if there's one sin that has mastery in your soul and is not continually being put down and put to death, then you may fail of the grace of God because that sin is your idol sin, your darling sin. But then the text earnestly says, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. So we are to be on his watchtower, on, on our watchtowers for ourselves and for others. 
The first person, says Spurgeon, who is likely to fail in this church is myself, and each one ought to feel that. The beginning of the watch should therefore be at home. We we need to take heed to our own hearts, take heed to our own understanding. We are to be the first to suspect ourselves and to keep close watch upon our hearts. Then we are also to exercise watchfulness over others. That's not intrusive or invasive. It can be done insensitively. But love invents many ways of warning a friend without making him angry. And a holy example will also prove a great rebuke to sin. The very presence of some men is a check and a guide to others. It holds back sin in them and sends them in the right way. But the second thing to be avoided is the uprising of evil. Sin and error always bring sorrow and division and thereby many are defiled. There's to be no root of bitterness springing up to trouble us by which we may be defiled. And, says Spurgeon, sometimes the root of that bitterness is doctrinal error. If men choose errors, he says, let them form their own churches. They have no right to thrust their views upon our community. There's a certain form of doctrine which we believe to be scriptural. And if any members deviate from it, their first duty is to leave the church when they can no longer agree with its belief. As long as I am pastor, I shall have no controversy about doctrines which are our settled basis of association, but shall bid those who differ go where they can hold their own views in peace. If this should not prove successful, our duty will be to follow peace by extirpating, cutting out the root of bitterness and putting the Jonah overboard. He says we're a a Baptist church and we're a particular Baptist church. That's who and what we are. If you don't want that, fine. Go and be part of another congregation and another denomination. But we are who and what we are by conviction, and we are not going to change, and you should not expect us to change unless you can demonstrate from the word of God that we are wrong. Now, he says, I'm persuaded that doctrinal differences in a church by breeding the spirit of contention altogether prevent that church from serving God aright. While we hold one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and are moved by the same Spirit, we shall advance to the battle as one man, knit together in the bonds of holy unity. But when roots of bitterness spring up, they must be cut down and kept down, or else ultimately they will bring defilement. Doctrinal error leads to practical error. A church which treats God's doctrine as nothing will soon allow his precept to be treated in the same way, and this would altogether defile the church of God. But it's not only doctrinal error, it's also sin which provokes this root of bitterness. When they who preach the gospel, or who held office in the church, or who are members of it, fall into gross and open sin, hell laughs in derision, and we should watch diligently against this. Watch ourselves first, and our brothers next. Dear friends, says Spurgeon, guard against the beginning of sin. Rest assured, Christian professors never go into great sins on a sudden. There is first a neglect of private prayer, an indulgence in something which looks innocent but is not, and by degrees it comes to open sin. Beware then that initial drift from God. Beware that departure from communion. Beware that uh, beginning appetite for things that are vain and and empty and then things that are uh, dirty and unclean and then things that are vile and foul. On your knees, pray to God to crush the eggs of the old dragon before they're hatched. 
For if you be children of God and go into sin, it will cost you I know not what. It may cost you sorrow to your grave. Again, you think, what must it have been for a a man who is holy as Spurgeon is holy to preach this felt sense of holiness before God? It must have been profoundly compelling. And it's what preachers need today. It's the same sense that Paul had in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. The character of the minister should compel attention to what he says. If rightly moved then by the truth taught in this sermon, says Spurgeon, we shall be very humble. When Isaiah had heard the seraphim cry, holy, 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 while the posts of the doors moved, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Asks Spurgeon, Do you not feel the same? Then let humility prevail in your spirit. Let it rule in your heart more and more. Do not be afraid of being brought very low. You are never so safe as when you are low. So then is this is really the, the prime application. If you've been gripped by these truths, humility is the only way forward. To cry out to God to have mercy upon you, to come to him for the first time or to come to him again and to say, Lord, take away my transgressions, blot out all my sins, remove my iniquities. It's a, a call upon us then to, to pursue this peace and this holiness, and on the other hand, to flee from this this failure, this falling short, and to let these roots of bitterness grow up in our souls. And so Spurgeon's closing plea is to those in the house who have backslidden. He begs them, he begs us, he begs you to mourn indeed, and to put your trust in Jesus, and to begin again. And if there be any professor, any anybody who's testifying to follow Christ, young or old, who ought not to be so, I ask him either to lay down his profession or to make it real. So this is a a sermon to strip away hypocrisy. This is a sermon to remove all that kind of mere notion from our religion and to drive it deep into our very hearts. And I hope you've you've got something. I, I feel like I'm very much falling short of the spirit of the sermon as I try and give you some sense of it. But I hope that we've got something across of that earnestness, that urgency, that intensity, I think to an unusual degree, this this cut towards these two great things to be followed, these two great things to be avoided, this almost relentless pursuit of this peace and this holiness and this relentless assault upon everything that would undermine or countermand it. And I trust that as we feel the force of those words, that it will remind us of the importance of that peace which we desire with God and with all men and then the holiness without which no one will see the Lord and I trust you'll join us again next time for the next sermon we're reading 941 to 947 God willing and we'll be focusing on 942 a sermon simply entitled The Way my name is Jeremy Walker this podcast comes to you from Media Gratii I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to us. I hope you'll tell people about it. You'll spread the news that you might also enable others to benefit from some of the things that this gifted preacher says. But until next time, if God spares us, thank you for listening and may God bless us 
in the pursuit of peace and of holiness.